Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and I'm joined, as always, by Hannah Abrams and Avi Cooper. Hannah, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Tony? Not bad. Avi? I'm good. Feeling thankful. That's right. We are recording uh, just days before Thanksgiving, though you'll hear this a few weeks after. You'll probably still be full, though. Without a doubt. (laughs) Um, Well, tonight we are recording not about tryptophan, which you guys will hear about probably during Thanksgiving week, but about a genetic condition that is one of the first diseases many people learn about in medical school. We learn about genetic diseases a lot, I think, sort of at the beginning of medical school because they help us correlate fundamental concepts with biochemistry and these other sort of preclinical classes to correlate all of that with how patients actually feel. Sickle cell disease is one of those early learning points. And so tonight, we aren't so much going to focus on sickle cell disease, but on sickle cell trait, which is to say when someone inherits one abnormal or variant hemoglobin gene. And we're specifically going to examine why having sickle cell trait may help protect against severe malaria infection. So Avi, tell us what drew you to the topic. This actually was one of the first tutorials that I did way back in December 2019 when I was sort of just first getting into that game. And as you said, Hannah, sickle cell disease is one of the first diseases that I learned about during the first year of medical school. I still remember learning about it very early on. And I think it even came up in college biology when we learned about amino acids. And one thing that's always fascinated me about it is sickle cell trait and why it's so prevalent in malaria zones and why it seems to protect against that parasitic infection. I think this discussion is going to have to have at least one of its centers around the hemoglobin molecule itself, um, which, you know, it's an amazing molecule. It's at the kind of heart of our existence as aerobic beings. And I could ask you, Avi, hey, tell us a little bit of an overview of hemoglobin, but it feels like more appropriate for me to ask that question of Hannah. So Hannah, you want to give us a little bit of an overview of hemoglobin? Ask the expert. Yeah. And and, yeah, try to keep it to under three hours. (laughs) Uh, I'll try. I'm just kidding. But Hemoglobin is a really fascinating molecule and, as you said, is the basis of human life. It's the basis of our aerobic existence. I love that. I'm going to use that next time I write a consult note. So hemoglobin is a metalloprotein, meaning that it contains iron, and it's what's used by almost all vertebrates to transport oxygen to tissues and carbon dioxide away from tissues. Each hemoglobin molecule contains alpha and beta globin subunits, hence hemoglobin, which are attached to an iron-containing heme molecule. In adults, the normal type of hemoglobin, or most common hemoglobin in adults, is hemoglobin A. And just to give you guys a fun fact, each red blood cell contains about 280 million hemoglobin molecules. So the average adult contains 1.7 pounds of hemoglobin. That's a ribeye steak worth of hemoglobin. That's a lot of yeah. hemoglobin. You know, I want to add one thing because I uh, I learned this and we talked about it in a few episodes back, and it's it's that hemoglobin, obviously a protein, has amino acids, but it lacks one specific amino acid, the isoleucine. And we talked about this fact in episode 70 when we talked about why BUN increases after an upper GI bleed. The sort of lack of isoleucine uh, ended up playing kind of a, a key role. But I don't know, let's return to sickle cell trait, sickle cell disease. Like, Avi, what happens to hemoglobin, particularly in sickle cell? disease. Yeah. So with sickle cell, um, there's an inherited mutation in the beta globin gene where a glutamic acid in the hemoglobin protein is changed to a valine. And instead of hemoglobin A, you get what's called hemoglobin S. 
And this change exposes a hydrophobic residue on the surface of the hemoglobin S molecule, which sort of causes clumping of the hemoglobin S and sickling of red blood cells and capillaries, particularly during hypoxic conditions. Essentially, when the hemoglobin enters into a deoxygenated state, hemoglobin S starts to polymerize on itself and sort of form these cascading bundles, which leads to the sickling of the red blood cell. And so tell us, Avi, about sickle cell trait versus sickle cell disease, or specifically sickle cell anemia. When someone has sickle cell trait, they're heterozygous. So they've inherited one normal hemoglobin A gene copy and one hemoglobin S gene from their parents. So this is called hemoglobin AS. Such individuals have a 25% chance of passing on sickle cell disease to their offspring if both parents have sickle cell trait. But generally, they are themselves asymptomatic. Although your red blood cell sickling can still occur in certain situations, essentially things that lead to cellular stress like acidosis or hypoxia. And they can rarely develop pain crises when doing things sort of on the more physiologic extremes like scuba diving, climbing at high altitudes, or if they're really dehydrated. And there's also some evidence that people with sickle cell trait are more prone to rhabdomyolysis or even heat stroke when they have really extreme exertion and exercise. So still something to to sort of be mindful for them. Yeah. And also dehydration with sort of like hypoxic sickling at the bottom of the renal medulla. So you can have some like hyposthenuria. But yeah, and I've I've definitely heard of people having with sickle cell trait occasionally having pain crises, but it is really rare. That's fascinating. Um, It's funny. I saw so few patients throughout my training with either sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait that I'm I'm clearly a novice amongst the group. But the reality is, I'll be honest, the pathophysiology is absolutely fascinating. And the, the idea that this single molecule, this hemoglobin molecule undergoes such amazing changes on, under the stress is kind of crazy to imagine. But here we're kind of also trying to think about how it plays into malaria and sort of that overlap between sickle cell trait and sort of the malaria zones. And so one question is like, how common, Avi, is sickle cell trait in those malaria regions of, of sort of a high burden of disease? It's extraordinarily common in zones that have a lot of malaria, such as sub-Saharan Africa, parts of South America. In areas that have the highest parasite transmission rates, the prevalence of sickle cell trait, it can reach 30 to 40% of the population. I mean, that is how common it can get to have sickle cell trait in these endemic malaria zones. So clearly, there has been evolutionary pressure that favors sickle cell trait where it offers this this advantage, even though sickle cell disease um, in the homozygous state can be so devastating. And this is actually called balancing selection, where you have these sort of contrary pressures. But you know, similarly, even for people who don't live in malaria zones, if their ancestry traces back to areas where malaria is endemic, those populations are going to have higher incidences of sickle cell trait too. So in the United States, Black and Hispanic populations have the highest incidence of sickle cell trait, which has sort of been looked at in things like newborn screening programs. That's sort of been looked at that way. Yeah. So this episode, we are focused on malaria prevention and specifically why sickle cell trait may help prevent malaria for people who are living in endemic malaria zones. So I guess to start, can you tell us more about malaria? Malaria is, it's really, it's like a scourge. It's a true scourge in our species. And the numbers are sort of mind boggling. I mean, according to UNICEF, in 2021, there were almost 250 million cases of malaria across the world with 619,000 deaths. And of those 619,000 deaths, more than three quarters of them were children under five. So it's just truly devastating. And looking at malaria's life cycle as a parasite, there are essentially three stages, the mosquito stage, 
the liver stage, and the blood stage. So after the mosquito stage, you know, immature malaria sporozoites get transmitted to humans from the Anopheles mosquito during that mosquito's blood meal. And that's sort of basically how it ends up getting into us, first into the person's bloodstream, and then it goes straight to the liver where it infects hepatocytes and it begins to divide, taking the more mature form called a schizont. And the next stage then really involves rupture of those hepatocytes, release of the parasites back into the blood, which can then infect red blood cells. They replicate some more, and then they then lyse the red blood cells too, right? And so the blood stage is really what causes symptoms and gets people so sick. But some of those released schizonts differentiate into gametocytes, and then those gametocytes are what get picked up by a mosquito. They undergo sexual replication in the mosquito's stomach. They produce sporozoites that can then infect another person and repeat the cycle. And I was sort of interesting to learn about for me that we as humans are considered intermediate hosts for malaria. We are essentially just a place for it to replicate before it hops back to another mosquito. It's so fascinating to think that the parasite co-evolved with all these different species and used them to sort of jump around human, mosquito, and and we're sort of an intermediary. And it's also fascinating to think about how the understanding of malaria has changed over time. Because if you think even about the way it was named, right, you know, the Romans named it malaria, as in bad air, because the, the idea was it was from the, like the miasma in the air and with no understanding whatsoever that it had anything to do with the mosquito. But... More importantly, I feel like we should talk a little bit about, about that connection between a sickle cell trait and how it protects against this sort of miasmic air in the form of a mosquito. You know, Avi, what is the evidence that sickle cell trait actually protects against malaria? Yeah, and an important distinction is whether having sickle cell trait, whether it protects against contracting malaria infection or if you one gets malaria, against more severe clinical manifestations. And it actually seems to be both. The first observation of this association occurred way back in 1954 by a South African physician scientist named Anthony Allison. He asked a fundamental question while he was in East Africa um, studying the blood of people exposed to malaria. Why has the sickle cell gene persisted in populations given that homozygosity leads to sickle cell disease. you know, He reasoned that having sickle cell trait must somehow offer an advantage and had the insight that it might protect against malaria, sort of realizing that, that balancing selection. JBS Haldane had actually made a similar supposition for heterozygosity for thalassemia previously, um, which is another inherited hemoglobinopathy. So you know, in this classic paper, Allison observed that having sickle cell trait does indeed protect against both malaria, parasitemia, and mortality. But then there was this questionable turn where Allison inoculated volunteers with plasmodium falciparum, some of whom had sickle cell trait, essentially to like prospectively see what happened. And then, you know, those with sickle cell trait were markedly protected from parasitemia compared to those with normal hemoglobin. And you know, and you can see in the paper, like the difference is really striking. Like 14 of 15 of the volunteers with normal hemoglobin developed parasitemia, while only two out of 15 with sickle cell trait did. And essentially like watched them for like 40 days. And then if they got sick or 40 days past, he would then like, I think, treat them with an anti-parasitic, but pretty interesting study. Yeah, that's, I mean, wow. Important physiologic insight and also wow at that study design and ethics. I went and I looked and because I was like, wait, how did this happen? And as you can imagine, in the 1950s, they don't offer the IRB overview or um, oversight. They cite these persons as being, quote, volunteers. But what their volunteer status was, I, I don't know. I don't know if you ever found anything more detailed, Avi. No, it's just really hard to imagine 
infecting people intentionally with plasmodium falciparum. <laughs> Yeah, and then withholding treatment. But I have to imagine this has been studied in an era of both IRBs and larger data sets. It has. It has, thankfully. Um, Yeah. Is is there newer data? There is, yeah. (laughs) Um, That wasn't enough, the uh, the 14 out of 15 versus 2 out of 15? Right. Yeah, so there was a 2002 survival analysis of malaria morbidity and mortality from like a birth cohort in Kenya that looked at sickle cell trait and association with malaria outcomes, really focusing on kids like less than five. And so they had data for over a thousand children and found that having sickle cell trait was associated with protection against all cause mortality and also high density parasitemia, severe malarial anemia, which they defined as a hemoglobin less than six gram per deciliter plus 10,000 parasites per microliter of blood. And apparently, the, you know, the strongest protection was for kids between ages two months and 16 months, which I guess, according to the authors, is the highest risk period for severe malarial anemia. And you know that study didn't look at cerebral malaria specifically, but other studies have demonstrated that sickle cell trait also protected against cerebral malaria. It sounds like, based on what you've reviewed, that a major driver, if not like the major driver of the persistence and high prevalence of the sickle cell trait in these sort of malaria endemic regions is the clear advantage for children who have the the genotype, the hemoglobin AS. They sort of are less likely to get malaria and they're less likely to have severe morbidity and mortality if they do get malaria. And you mentioned the UNICEF data showing that children are particularly vulnerable to severe infections. So, you know, I think and now I'm really, really fascinated to learn, you know, what's the mechanism? Like we could generate hypotheses, but this has to, I'm sure, have been looked at in, in detail, given how prevalent this disease is, meaning malaria. Yeah, there are at least four mechanisms, and they're really interesting. So the first one I'll focus on is really the key to all the others, and that is that malarial infection of a red blood cell, that creates a propensity for sickling events to occur in that red blood cell. And this was demonstrated in a 1978 in vitro study where red blood cells from sickle cell trait donors were infected with plasmodium falciparum. So there's, this wasn't the, um, the actual people, this was their red blood cells. The researchers found that hemoglobin sickling occurred at eight times the rate, eight times, when there was compared to the same red blood types of red blood cells from the same donor that were uninfected with malaria. So you know, this may be due to things like local acidosis, you know, related to the parasite replicating, but I didn't see a great explanation as to why. Um, but I guess it's not surprising that it's like a stressful thing for a red blood cell to undergo and might predispose to sickling. Either way, you know, remember that we generally hope that sickling doesn't occur in everyday life for someone with sickle cell trait because pain crises can arrive, people can get sick. But when you have malaria, sickling is advantageous because the spleen is going to clear those infected red blood cells because of the sickled hemoglobin. That's so interesting. And I think, you know, we assume that splenic clearance helps the par- kill the parasites, disrupt that like malarial life cycle that you went through. That's so interesting also because hemolysis is more prominent in other sickle cell disease spectrum hemoglobinopathies, like hemoglobin C, for example, sort of makes you wonder if if other sort of like hemolysis prone hemoglobinopathies, that might be a reason. Also thalassemia, like you mentioned. So that's that's very interesting. And so that kind of explains enhanced killing of the parasites. If you told me that was the whole reason, I might I might believe you there. Yeah, we could just stop. Right? Um, like enough to me. But, <laughs> but you said at least four. <laughs> so what about, I mean, is there anything about how the malaria itself can infect the red blood cell? Is the cell itself more resistant? 
It is. And this second mechanism was also really fascinating to learn about. I didn't know this, but apparently the malaria parasite digests hemoglobin after it enters a red blood cell by sort of utilizing this like protease enzyme that it has. And I guess it does this to essentially feed itself. It needs amino acids while it's proliferating and dividing. And so it digests protein to free up amino acids for it to use. And a 2018 study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that when sickle hemoglobin clumps together, this blocks the parasite's ability to digest and break down that hemoglobin, essentially depriving the parasite of a key nutrient during its life cycle, blocking its growth and proliferation, and again, sort of disrupting and preventing its ability to really make the person sick. So which I thought, I thought that was so fascinating. I have two things in my mind. One is I'm now wondering what the BUN is for plasmodium because it's eating all this hemoglobin. I was like, oh God, it must have the highest BUN to creatinine ratio. And the other is this sort of like millennia long battle between sort of humans and plasmodium. It's like sort of like, you know, tete a tete, you know, let, let's sort of like see who can win out inside these hemoglobin molecules. The poor hepatocytes are just sort of not part of the discussion at all. Um <laughs> But but this is two of the mechanisms. Uh, I think we've got two to go. So w- what about three and four? Yeah. So the third mechanism, it seems to be related to the immune response to malaria infection, where people with sickle cell trait have seem to have heightened immune responses. This was examined in a 1992 study in the transactions of the Royal Society of Tropical Medicine. They looked at how peripheral blood mononuclear cells from children in Sudan who had hemoglobin AS or sickle cell trait responded to exposure to malaria antigens in vitro. And they would look at it essentially depending on if the blood sample was collected during the malaria season and compared that to children without sickle cell trait or who had hemoglobin you know, AA. The monocytes from children with sickle cell trait had heightened lymphoproliferative responses in response to malarial antigens, specifically during the malarial season, which is a time where they're getting exposed to malaria presumably. Whereas children without sickle cell trait, they had no seasonal change in their monocyte response to malarial antigens whatsoever. Even though you know they had, they were living in the same place, they had the same exposure to malaria um, in the environment at the time. So it seems like probably related to the first two mechanisms that we've talked about, especially that splenic clearance. I'm assuming that the immune response to the malaria um, is heightened as well. That's so interesting. I wonder if it has to do with mechanism number one about uh, enhancing the clearance of the malaria parasite in the spleen. Presumably. All right. So we've done one, two, and three. What's mechanism number four? Hemoglobin S have Yeah, like full surprises. This last protective factor I found really intriguing. It has to do with the incidence of bacteremia. Multiple studies have shown that malaria infection is a risk factor for both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteremia. And that's thought to be a significant contributor to morbidity and mortality from infection. And a 2011 study in The Lancet showed that children with sickle cell trait are relatively protected from this complication. So the researchers conducted a case control and sort of a longitudinal outcome study in Kenya with children who were 13 years of age and younger, looking at how sickle cell trait impacted the risk of bacteremia. And they found a few interesting things. First, that in this malaria endemic area, malarial infection accounted for more than half of all cases of bacteremia that they detected. And second, children with sickle cell trait had one-third the incidence of bacteremia than kids who did not have sickle cell trait. So 
it seems to have this secondary benefit of not just preventing the malarial infection, but also preventing the secondary bacteremia. That's totally wild and, and not at all what I was expecting the fourth mechanism to be. Like, oh, let's talk about not parasitemia, but bacteremia. As you think about this in total, you've got this sort of global protection that happens from having sickle cell trait in places where malaria is endemic. And it's, you know, the fact that persons who are sickle cell trait are less likely to contract malaria. If they do, they're relatively protected from severe manifestations like cerebral malaria, but they're also protected from these complications that I wouldn't have thought of, like bacterial bloodstream infections. So there's kind of a a lot of pressures, evolutionary pressures that kind of make sense for why sickle cell trait is more prevalent or why that gene is more prevalent in malaria zones. That's probably enough for an episode, but is there anything else you want to sort of like blow our minds with? Well, I'm a big fan of history. I really like trying to go back to the origins of things and sort of understanding like really where things come from and how they, you know, how we first came to know something and or how first something first came to be. And I wanted to know about the genetic origins of the sickle cell gene. So I found some really cool literature on this. And, you know, there's been genetic analyses that have been done. I don't understand the methodologies well, but these genetic analyses uh, seem to show that the sickle cell gene probably arose as a novel mutation in someone who lived about 7,300 years ago in the area of North Africa that is now occupied by the Sahara Desert. But at that time, the climate was much wetter and it wasn't a desert really at all. There were lakes and trees and grass. I mean, it was a geological epoch you know, known as the African humid period or the green Sahara. I'm sort of hearkening back to, to Tony, your point about the you know, origins of the you know, malaria around, you know, the bad air around like swamps and bogs and stuff, you know, that's what you had in an area that's now a desert. Um, But back then it was a place where there were lots of mosquitoes, presumably malaria. So that one individual had a survival advantage against malaria and then passed it on to their children on and on and on and, you know, help sort of fight back against malaria infection until today. You know, it's so, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but this episode is probably going to air on one of the dates where an FDA decision is expected on gene therapy for sickle cell disease. Oh, no kidding. And yeah, and so I'm just like odd to think about the history of this gene over 7,000 years. And it's, mm. I mean, it's awful. It causes so much pain. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes people sort of wonder why when they're like in the midst of that kind of pain. And so it's interesting to learn about and also maybe hopefully give some people some insight into the the kind of the background of the gene to know all of this history. So thanks for sharing. Do you want to give us some take-home points? So sickle cell trait protects against malaria infection and severe malaria manifestations if infection occurs. And this results from sickling within infected red blood cells, which leads to enhanced parasite clearance in the spleen, impaired parasite growth, and it seems to be associated with enhanced anti-malarial immune responses. Sickle cell trait is also associated with a lower risk of secondary bacteremia as a result of malaria infection. So multiple reasons and benefits to having a sickle cell trait in a malaria zone. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks as always for joining us. Our audio is edited by Claire Morgan of Notterly, and our producer is Giancarlo Bonomo. You can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. And you can subscribe to our Substack at TheCuriousClinicians.Substack.com. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from VCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org forward slash curious clinicians. 
And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.